1: Here we go. It's another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a terrific panel of journalists uh, to talk to us uh, today. And uh, we have so much, so much to cover. There's no way in the world we're going to get to all of the news of the day. But uh, this panel will certainly help us with uh, that effort. Uh, before I introduce everybody, uh, just let me give you the latest on uh, the figures that the Department of Public Health in Georgia is, uh, uh, has sent out This is as of last night. Um, We are now at 1,328 deaths in Georgia. Uh, That includes 33 deaths that were reported in the last 24 hours. My my caveat there is it doesn't mean those people necessarily died in the last 24 hours, but may have died previously to that, and the numbers have just been uh, reported. There's now 5,791 people in the state hospitalized. Uh, That's up 123 admissions in the last 24 hours. But but the most significant figure about hospitalizations and the most distressing, and one that we've talked about on the show in the past, is fully 80% of those hospitalized in Georgia are African Americans. This disease continues to take a disproportionate and uh, very, very uh, uh, discouraging to hear toll on African Americans, and now we're learning Hispanics are uh, suffering either from the disease itself or in the loss of jobs. A report just came out of Washington uh, saying that some 40 plus percent of Hispanics say they've lost their jobs as a result of uh, shutdowns due to the coronavirus. So uh, it's it's awful to have to say that minorities are paying a higher price than uh, many of the rest of us as we deal with the coronavirus. Um <clears throat> I do wanna bring in the panel and then I wanna share with you a report that Willoughby Mariano of the AJC did. And I'm gonna get the panel to react to it because I think Willoughby has given us, from my point of view, the clearest understanding of how They think about the virus spreading or not spreading. So let's start by getting the panel involved in this. Uh, Kevin Riley is with us. It's Thursday. The editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution joins us on Thursdays. Kevin, I thanked you yesterday, but now that I've got you here, thank you for uh, hosting the show the other day. You were terrific.
2: Oh, well, thanks, Bill. Um, you know, I'm no Bill Nugget. We all know that. But it, I was uh, enjoyed it. We had a great show. And I'm glad to be with you again here on Thursday morning, twice in one week. It's almost more Bill Nugget than I can handle.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Tia Mitchell is also with us. She's the AJC's Washington correspondent. Tia, thank you for being with us today.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: You filed a couple of stories in the last few days that we're going to uh, talk about today, and we'll get to those in a couple of minutes. Uh, Adam Van Brimmer is with us from Savannah. He's the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Adam, thank you. At some point in the show, we want to hear what's going on in Savannah with the virus. But in the meantime, thanks for being here.
3: Yeah, thanks for the invite, Bill. It's always a pleasure.
1: And uh, Kyle Hayes, who I consider to be Mr. Peach Pod, he, he operates uh, one of the finest, he produces, hosts one of the finest uh, podcasts about Georgia politics uh, that you can listen to, uh, even though Kyle, an Atlanta guy, is now living in Washington. Kyle, you stay on top of Georgia news uh, so uh, well, and your podcast reflects that. I, As I introduce you, I think your newest podcast is really an interesting one. You talked to the people behind the National Democratic Training Committee, the academy in which they're training people to be able to go out and usually go out and canvas. And you talk to them, I think, about how they're uh, readjusting uh, to uh, uh, reaching out and getting their message out in the middle of the pandemic. Have I got that right?
4: Yeah, that was a really great conversation. Thanks for sharing it, Bill. Um, It it was really interesting because people got out of this training committee um, and join campaigns in Georgia amidst this transition away from in-person campaigning to campaigning primarily digitally. And so if you're interested in how campaigns are navigating that challenge, this is a great opportunity to hear about that.
1: We just heard on the NPR newscast that Joe Biden is making a visit to Florida today, a key state, obviously in the presidential election, but he's doing it. Virtually, he'll be doing it, I assume, from the basement of his house as he's been doing all of his other appearances. It'll be fascinating to see how that ended up developing. All right. Uh, As I said, I thought we I've expressed my concern over a period of weeks about how we report and get from the Department of Public Health numbers about how the virus is either spreading or not spreading. Uh, The uh, projections that have come from. Uh, Organizations like the University of Washington and others, uh, some people have had uh, taken issue with. But listen to what how uh, Willoughby Mariano in the AJC reported on this. There is a consortium of university researchers, Columbia University being the lead on this. Georgia Tech is involved in this as well. And, And here's how Willoughby described what they're saying about how the virus does or does not spread. She said that um, the spread of the disease can be determined by what epidemiologists call the reproduction number, or the R. They call it the R factor. During shelter-in-place in in Georgia, the R factor sank to one, which means that for each person who contracted the virus, they spread it to just one other person. And, And they suggested that because of that, Sheltering in place at least didn't have an explosive, we didn't see an explosion of cases beyond that. But if R goes even slightly above one, slightly above one, the results can be exponential. The disease can overrun a healthcare system over the course of a several of several months. So here again, if the R number remains at one, it won't go away. We'll continue to see it. If it dips below one, the number of new cases uh, will be – that means that the number of new cases are shrinking and the disease can be stopped. Um, Kevin Riley, she, she's one of your staffers. I thought hearing about that was a fascinating way to look at what sheltering in place has meant and how you calculate what it means if we start uh, mingling socially and in work situations again.
2: Bill, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, experts have been worried about the virus from the beginning because it's, uh, of its ability to spread so quickly. In other words, how many people, even one person, could infect? Right, and the goal has always been to get that number below one to try to get the to try to get the disease under under control. Um, the, the real question is simple. I mean, if for states and and other uh, organizations that have implemented strict shelter in place, the idea is like, don't let people have the chance to spread the disease. I think Governor Brian Kemp's belief is, well, if people follow good rules, they wear a face masks, they, they uh, keep appropriate distance, we can keep this number low, and we're counting on people doing that. It really is a debate about whether or not people will will do that. And uh, so far the numbers appear to show that it's very hard to keep that number low without pretty demanding restrictions uh, in a state or in a community.
1: Adam, you want to jump in?
2: Yeah, Bill. What's been incredibly frustrating
3: to a lot of our readers down here that we've heard from is the numbers that are being presented. There's a lot of people that uh, we're not getting a, the proper trend line on the numbers. We're not getting any kind of idea on, on that spread. We're not getting any kind of idea on how many people have been hospitalized and been released. We're not even really getting firm numbers on, on tests and, and confirmed cases. So there's a lot of people that are like, okay, well, I hear anecdotally that most of the cases here in Chatham County are tied to nursing homes. Well, we're only hearing that anecdotally. So people are wondering, well, should I go out? Should I not go out? And You know, even though you've got reopened economy, you've got reopened businesses, there's a lot of people that that are playing it safe and playing it cautious and not going out. And it's really – I'd be interested to hear, Kevin, what you guys are seeing in in Atlanta as to to how transparent the numbers are and how hard is it to interpret.
1: Tia, go ahead, jump in, and then we'll get Kevin back.
0: I just want to say I think, you know, you guys are talking about the difference that happens when things are mandated versus – optional slash, you know, make good choices, which seems to be kind of where Governor Kemp is steering Georgians is like, we're going to ease the restrictions and bank on our residents to make good choices. And you see the pictures when I look at the pictures from Atlanta and how people are outside and you see um, relatively few people wearing masks because it's optional. And I just want to tell you guys, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, up here in the D.C. area. And when I go to the store, everyone has on a mask. And the difference is because it's required. You are not allowed to go into any business establishment that's currently open, very few of which are open, without a mask.
2: Well, I think that, you know, what this presents is confusion. I mean, to, to get to, right to Adam's question is I think you can walk up to 10 people in metro Atlanta, Uh, as long as you stayed at least six feet away, and ask them what they believe they should be doing and whether they're following good practices, and there's a good chance you get 10 different answers. And then also the Department of Health has changed – uh, pretty routinely how they're reporting the statistics and exactly how they're compiling them. So that makes it uh, confusing. We hear, we hear from readers, I heard from several already this morning, who are very frustrated about how the statistics are being presented. And we're working on trying to find a way to sort through all of that. Um, but again, we're only talking about statewide uh, statistics. Uh, you know, The Department of Health is, is, has changed that. And look, if no matter who you are, what you care about is where you live and what's going on. It's not helpful to know what's going on in Metro Atlanta when you live in Savannah or you live in Valdosta. And the statewide numbers aren't all that useful to you. So I think the, the state has just been exposed for having weak public health infrastructure that's both historical and ongoing. And hopefully this pandemic will inspire the state's leaders to fund that stuff and to support that stuff, because I believe, you know, and many people believe these are the sorts of health threats that are going to be ongoing in Georgia.
4: Well, and the other thing that that reproduction rate figure suggests, Bill, is that when the reproduction rate increases again, it is advisable for the state to then snap back to shelter in place conditions, restrict people's movements even further. And there has been so much frustration and and political animosity related to the initial shelter-in-place order and then bringing it back to um, the limited opening circumstances that exist now that it seems really questionable to me whether or not the state would see that number rise and put shelter-in-place conditions back into place. But that's what public health experts suggest you need to do based on that figure. It's going to be a really... Interesting problem to see how the state reacts to that figure.
1: Yeah, I think everybody is holding their breaths, both elected officials like Brian Kemp uh, and Kathleen Toomey, his public health commissioner, and all of us as citizens, in addition to our work in, in journalism, to see what happens in the week, say, in the next two weeks in terms of whether or not we have an increase in COVID cases or not based on the new rules.
2: Phil, the other thing that's happening, I think, and will continue to happen is uh, companies, especially large companies, have little choice but to try to seek out information from the best experts they have access to and make decisions about what they're going to do. Because really when Governor Kemp talks about this, what does he talk about? He talks about small businesses. There's all this controversy about you know, salons and, and a massage therapists and, and tattoos and bowling alleys. And, and, and those things are very important. Those are small businesses and those are his voters. But if you're a, a large company, you have maybe thousands of employees who are hearing different things and for which you have no choice But to try to set a policy, and it may be very much at odds with what their neighbors are doing or what they believe employees are hearing from the governor and others. So I think we have just made this ripe for such confusion in Georgia that ultimately will be very frustrating and at worst very dangerous for citizens in the state.
1: Yeah. Uh, 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 yes. It's interesting that we've learned within the last 24 hours that some of Georgia's bigger employers, uh, the Coca-Cola company, UPS and others, have said they're in no hurry to stop uh, teleworking to get their people back uh, into Georgia. Uh, Tia, I want to turn to you on a different aspect of what's happening. We, we've heard over and over again that uh, a, a a governor, uh, the president, uh, has to balance the economic Devastation brought by the virus against the dangers it poses to its citizens. Uh, This report that we saw yesterday from the state revenue department, that we had a billion dollars less in tax revenue, 35% drop in tax revenue tells you just what an awful situation we face economically. And as you know, Tia... Uh, state leaders here, uh, including budget leaders in the House, David Ralston and others, have urged uh, Congress to please take as a next step in their bailout plans, uh, getting money back to the states, to cities who are going to need it urgently. But, but uh, Leader McConnell seems to continue to be a little dubious about whether that's the next right step. What can you tell us, now that the Senate's back in session up there, which is worth talking about, too, what can you tell us about whether we're going to see any action up there? Well,
0: I think that similar, so Republicans in general, but particularly on the Senate side, because that's they're in control over there, you know, there are two lines of thinking. On one side, Republicans want to bail out their home states. They Every state is, you know, in a similar situation in Georgia, um, so of course there is that call from local leaders as well as you know their representatives in Congress. We need to help the states. However, we also know Republicans have been saying for years the the deficit is out of control, and we don't need to keep sending money to states, and they need to better you know control their own destinies. And so. Some members are having a hard time reconciling these two very conflicting ways of thinking, even within the Republican Party. And so, for the Senate, that makes it very hard for them to figure out a direction to go. Last time, as a result, with the previous CARES Act, that's why you saw a lot of it was House Democrats who are in control going straight to the White House, you know, and working it out then. And so I wonder if that's going to happen again this time. I don't see, you know, there will be another coronavirus stimulus bill eventually. It will probably take two to four weeks, um, maybe even longer than that. Um, And there will be, I believe, there will likely be some help for states. But that can come in many different ways. And that's the question is it may not just be blank checks to the state, it might be in, you know, kind of similar to what happened with the New Deal, where there were programs put in place to stimulate the economy. It could be that type of thing with infrastructure and things.
4: Yeah, and I think at this point, it is really vital for listeners to understand that a fiscal crisis in state and local governments is only going to lengthen the damage lengthen the recession, increase the damage caused by the recession, and that's going to result in suffering for some of our state's most vulnerable residents. If there is isn't additional federal aid or if there's not adequate federal aid, then the state is going to have to lay off teachers and first responders and other state employees. Those people who are laid off won't be spending at local businesses that are already reeling because of the coronavirus pandemic. So the, the, the state fiscal picture here is really important as it relates to the overall health of the economy, and the state really needs to press for additional federal aid.
1: You know, Adam, uh, one of the things that has been somewhat disturbing in all of this uh, is that certainly the president, and for that matter, to some extent, uh, Mitch McConnell, have talked about the states in red and blue terms. And essentially, the president has Made it clear he doesn't want to bail out the blue states, uh, the led by Democratic governors, uh, because they're misusing the money they already have. Um, we don't expect that the, the president's going to be one of the great uniters of all of us in a in a crisis, even in this crisis. Uh, but it, it it certainly doesn't help to turn this into a partisan battle, Adam.
3: No, and it's it's. It really, quite frankly, it's very sad, and it's becoming pervasive in Washington that that everything is partisan. They don't necessarily. It doesn't seem to be the mindset in Washington anymore that you are elected and you represent all of your constituents and not just the ones who line up with you ideologically. And I don't know. I don't know when that's going to change. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I heard an interview last week with Gretchen Whitmer from uh, the governor of Michigan and how unsettled she was when. Um, when the protests happened and President Trump did the the Liberate Michigan and, and really kind of injected partisanship into that. And she flat out said that she went out of her way not to criticize the president, to not throw any stones, to not make it partisan, because she was afraid that if she did that, that it would hurt them getting the federal aid that that they would – that they were probably asked for and entitled to just over partisanship, and that just, that's really frightening. and. You know, you wonder how deep it's going to be. You talk about state budgets, you talk about local budgets. The city of Savannah budget here at the height of the shutdown was losing $150,000 every day in terms of tax revenue and then another $350,000 a week in parking revenue because they had separate plot funds for that. And everybody, every government is going to have a huge deficit coming out of this thing and it's going to be a slow build back. And unlike the federal government, we can't just, we can't pass budgets that aren't balanced. We have to we have to have revenue to to cover the expenses, and it's it's really kind of frightening to think about that going
1: forward. Well, we know that uh, the uh, appropriations committee is uh, meeting virtually today. Zoom gets another workout uh, to begin looking at how they're going to fund state government uh, for the 2021 fiscal year. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, a member of the Appropriations Committee on the show yesterday, expressed her concerns, and, of course, particularly about what it means for health care, Medicaid in the state. Um, so we're going to keep track of that in the days ahead. And as I mentioned yesterday, and I'll mention it uh, throughout the shows coming up, uh, we're really glad that Appropriations Chairman Terry England uh, has uh, uh, said he wants to do the show with us next Tuesday. We'll keep telling you that, and I think it'll be interesting to hear what he thinks about how they're going to move forward. Let's do this. Uh, let's get a break out of the way right now. When we come back, uh, Kelly Leffler is right smack dab in the middle of the news again, and we need to talk about what the latest concerns are among the people who are worried about Leffler and the way in which her Senate job and her private sector job all kind of – Feel like they've conflicted. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Kevin Hayes, Adam Van Brimmer, Kevin Riley join me for Political Rewind today, as does Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the AJC. Tia, you filed a story uh, in the AJC about the latest controversy over Leffler's. Uh, uh, job and her service in the Senate. And I think you, your your lead gives us a good starting point. You say in it, U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler often says she gave up a lucrative career to serve as Governor Brian Kemp's appointee in, wa- in Washington. On the way out the door, however, her company gave her a huge payday. Uh, we know that Loeffler... Once she uh, was sworn in up there, became the richest member of the United States Senate. Explain what the latest controversy is all about.
0: No, we have been studying Kelly Loeffler's financial disclosure, which she filed um, late last week, and it shows the money she's made. But the New York Times took that financial disclosure, looked at SEC filings from Intercontinental Exchange, which is the... um, company that her husband founded and that's the company that Leffler worked for up until she joined the Senate and what the New York Times found was that part of the reason why Leffler had such a big payday from Intercontinental Exchange is that they changed the rules to allow her to cash in on stock options even though she was resigning before she was fully vested you know and and I think the reason why it you know First of all, Leffler is, you know, by virtue of being in the U.S. Senate, she's a, a target. You know, she's on the big leagues when it comes to politics. So, of course, there are going to be critics. Democrats are going to criticize her. She's also in in election mode, so she's got opponents like Doug Collins who are going to criticize her. So they pounce whenever they see an end. The end particularly that they, they um, perceived with this is, that the rules were changed to help her make money. And, you know, that just plays into the narrative that, you know, the rich get to play by different rules and and that this company that's owned by her husband, which is, you know, it's a stock exchange. It owns a New York stock exchange. It has federal oversight that they were trying to make sure they, they had her leaving on a good note when she headed to Washington.
1: Kyle, without getting into the weeds on this story, uh, the the simple uh, fact of the matter which Tia reports uh, and the New York Times reported uh, first is that she uh, was able to get a compensation package that allowed her to cash in on stock options uh, even though she had resigned from the company and taken her seat in the Senate before the original vestment date of those financial instruments. And as a result of the company changing the rules to allow her to walk away with all of that, she got a nine million dollar payday. Now, uh, Tia points out very clearly. New York Times points out this is not a violation of this isn't illegal. It it may not even be a violation of Senate rules. But she, but 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 Kyle, as Kelly Leftler tries to establish herself. As a as the best candidate for this job in the November election, she these kinds of stories take her further and further away from the voters of the state who are right now, many of whom are struggling uh, with trying to make enough money to survive.
4: Yeah. And we, you know, we all remember that Governor Kemp introduced Kelly Loeffler and talking about her humble beginnings on a farm. I think it was in Iowa. She was a person who's strong in her faith. And that, you know, these stories really take away from that definition of herself that Kelly Loeffler was trying to create for herself. And it really stands in stark contrast to people living in the suburbs who Kelly Loeffler was supposed to appeal to, who even before this crisis had even more trouble affording childcare and healthcare and sending their kids to college, things like that. You know, people in the suburbs are not getting million dollar paydays when they leave their jobs. And so I think that this is a challenge for her to connect to that demographic that she was supposed to connect with. She has a challenge on her right uh, with Doug Collins, and Democrats are activated on these issues as well. And so she is going to be taking fire from a lot of directions on these issues.
1: You know, Kevin, I want to let you get in on this.
2: Yeah. On Tuesday, uh, we we talked a little bit about some of her latest uh, television ads as well. Um, and I think, you know, all these things coming together have created a really, you know, revealed a very poor sense of timing on her part. Um, again, I, you know, I think the debate about billionaires and all that stuff and millionaires in our country, is divisive, but I mean, I don't think any anyone at deep down is against someone who's been very, very successful, especially if they come from humble beginnings. It's a very simple problem, with, 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 which is what Kyle, I think, was pointing out. No one knows Kelly Leffler when you get right down to it. I mean, Brian Kemp took a big chance by picking someone who was an unknown, and now if you walked up to an average Georgian and said, what do you know about Kelly Leffler? I don't think they're the kinds of uh, that Georgian would recite the kinds of things that may that would sound like well she's really someone I can identify with because of how this has played out and now will that damage her or not I mean you know as as we've said before and I know I've made the point on the show before I mean she's obviously a political novice and then she's going to be running against Doug Collins who. Who is an experienced politician, uh, had an unbelievable platform all through the Trump impeachment, and uh, is a guy who is a good campaigner. So um, I think she's I think she's in real trouble no matter what you think of her and no matter what she represents, and no matter how you feel about her. Uh, I think she's put herself in a very tough spot and just sort of destroyed the advantage of incumbency that she had.
1: Uh, Tia, I want to get you in, and then Adam, I want you to respond too. We have another layer to add to all of this. Uh, Kevin Riley, of course, just pointed out that Doug Collins uh, refused when the governor did not appoint him to the seat to uh, stand down. He said, I'm going after that Senate seat, no matter what's happening with Kelly Leffler. and he's got momentum. And the latest example of that is that this morning, The uh, uh, campaign of Karen Handel, running, of course, for her old seat back up there in the 6th Congressional District, endorsed Doug Collins. So if you're going to start seeing members, more members of the Georgia Republican congressional delegation come out in favor of Leffler, it just makes her job harder and harder to you.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, CQ roll call— recently, you know, revised its list of the most vulnerable senators, and she's in the top 10 of the most at risk of of not being elected in in November. And I think it was interesting, you know, if anyone on the ballot in Georgia would be most um, similar to Kelly Loeffler, it would be Karen Handel. You know what I mean? Like, they're both running, you know, as as, um, conservative women, but you know, needing swing voters because Karen Handel's in a swing district. Kelly Leffler has to win statewide, and so for and, and Karen Handel, you know, is she does have a primary, but not really serious challengers. Um, so she doesn't, she didn't need Doug Collins really in the primary, right. and so I think it was interesting that she decided to align with him. Um, because it's it's not really helping her out. It seems to be something that she's decided she really believes in. Um, but I also think she's decided that she'd rather have Doug Collins on the ballot in November to help Republicans than she thinks Kelly Leffler will help her in November.
1: Yeah, Adam, this is really splitting Georgia Republicans apart. Uh, you've got the the Kemp people who are sticking by and mainstream. Uh, well, I'm even not sure I can use the word mainstream, but you've got Kemp Republicans who are sticking with uh, Leffler because they want to support the governor. Uh, you've got the national Republican organizations trying to get behind Leffler, but the conservative right in this state, the grassroots Republicans, don't want anything to do with her.
3: Yeah, and I'm so fascinated by the unforced acres here. I mean, it's you go, <laughs> you would think that, that the vetting would have been a little bit more thorough, that she, her campaign, or her people would have had a little bit more foresight into realizing that if anything sniffs of impropriety, even sniffs of impropriety, whether it's, it's her stock transactions uh, that were supposedly made at, at arm's length a couple of months back or this whole deal of of the early payout on investment, you would think that somebody would have looked at that and and kind of said, you got to think about how that's going to play. And it's not just left. I think we're probably going to talk at some point here that uh, our own representative here, our Congressman Buddy Carter has, has kind of gotten snarled in a similar thing where it might not be illegal. It might not be unethical. It might just be just happenstance that something went down the way it went down, but it's the way it's perceived. And if you're the Republican Party and Republicans in the state, which I think quite frankly have, have started to be divisive going back to to the 2018 and the, and the Kegel-Kemp split, it's just gonna split it all the more. And with Trump and Kemp dueling and going back and forth and, and Trump supporting Kemp at one minute and criticizing him the next and supporting him again, it really has fractured and I'm, quite frankly I think confused the farther, the more uh, ideological conservatives in this state, and it's going to be really interesting how it plays between now and November.
4: The one card that Senator Leffler still has up her sleeve is an endorsement from the president, if that was to come for her. Um, you know, listeners may remember that the president sort of floated Doug Collins for the director of national intelligence job. Collins turned that down. That sort of suggested that maybe the president backed Leffler, uh, but You know, Collins led in a recent poll, and the president might not want to align himself with somebody who's viewed as unpopular by Republicans. But a lot of these issues, I think, could be overridden if Trump endorses Kelly Loeffler. And so, in that vein, it was interesting to see that Kelly Loeffler, when she released some of this information, she tied herself to the president by saying that the media and her detractors have been critical of her in the same way that they had been critical of the president. She's clearly, I think, speaking to him in some of her moves here.
0: And, and one of the things I've observed in in covering her is that she really doesn't have many allies. You know what I mean? People will, willing to, you know, not just give the tepid, yeah, I, I like Kelly Loeffler. She's a true conservative. That's one thing. And that's something that, you know, President Trump will say, and Mitch McConnell will say, but to give a full-throated endorsement of her to say, "Hey, she's done nothing wrong and leave her alone. You' leave her alone. You're not hearing Republicans go to bat for her. And that's something you can tell she wishes she had and and, and, and it's it's becoming very glaring that Republicans, at this juncture, are, are kind of keeping her at an arm's length.
1: So I've got to get to a break in a minute, but, Ke- but Kevin, before I do, one other th- uh, aspect of this story that I've been puzzled by. Uh, Kelly Leffler and her husband, Jeff Sprecher, who, as Tia points out, uh, among other in- uh, things, own the New York Stock Exchange, are not hurting for money. Uh, they are both lovely people, by the way. I know you've dealt with them. I've dealt with them. Uh, just as, as, as uh, people in the community... They're, they've been terrific. But, but, Kevin, I can't help but wonder, given how rich she and her husband are, given how much money Jeff Sprecker himself has, why it was necessary to give her a $9 million payout as she went over to the Senate. It's not as if they're going to have trouble putting food on the table in the months ahead. And so it just seemed like an unnecessary thing to do at this at, at that moment in time.
2: Yeah, you know, you are right, uh, Bill. Jeff is very highly thought of in the Atlanta business community, and by all accounts, is a is yeah. a very solid guy who, who has built a, you know, very successful business. And um, so, uh, I think it's important to, re- to remember that, and I believe that probably had a lot to do with, with uh, you know Kemp's decision. Um, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can figure out is again something we've talked about. Um, Kelly Leffler did not spend her life preparing mm-hmm. to pursue high political office. So um, that was something what happened was probably somewhat sudden. Um, And often, you know, I I just think this is true. Often people whose wealth on paper is massive, someone like Jeff Sprecher, I mean, much of that can be tied up in the company and and working uh, within the company, even though on paper it looks differently. So there could be all kinds of explanations. I'm not a good enough financial expert for it. But in the end, I do think it comes down to political inexperience in the way that a lot of you know people who spent their life in politics would say – Do this, but don't do that. And they may have just simply lacked uh, the kind of advice that's crucial in a moment like that.
1: Um, All right, let's do this. Let's get our uh, final break of the show out of the way. And then when we come back, I really want to devote uh, the rest of our time together to talking about this awful story out of uh, uh, Brunswick. A shooting death that has now captured national attention has has become part of the political dialogue in the country, and is just an extraordinarily tragic event in the state of Georgia. We'll do that after this break. Uh, welcome back to uh, Political Rewind, Adam. I'm going since this took place down in your part of the state. I'm going to give you the first uh, chance to talk a little about this. But um, we we know that um, there is now enormous concern about a shooting that took place uh, in the Brunswick suburbs. Ahmad Arbery, 25-year-old African American, uh, was presumably jogging in a suburban neighborhood when uh, two white men uh, came out and confronted him, believing him to be, they thought, uh, a a burglar who had been uh, active in the area. And a a confrontation uh, unfolded, and uh, Arbery was shot to death. The the accelerant, that happened, we should point out, on February 23rd. It's, it's now May 7th, and we're only now beginning to understand what happened down there. We're only now beginning to hear about this story in, in, in the last days. Um, and the the video, which I personally, I cannot watch. I, 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 I think from a journalistic point of view, it's important to, but watching uh, this confrontation is very, very difficult. But it's now accelerated this case, which for weeks and weeks languished without... Uh, authorities down there uh, moving forward to investigate or take this to a grand jury. Okay, Adam, it's yours.
3: This story has got so many strings coming out of it to pull on. It's incredible. But the bottom line for me is, it, according to the family's attorney, and of course you have to take that and for what it's worth, the police have had video footage of this incident since the day it happened, and this video footage contradicts completely the statements that were in the police report about what happened. So if the police, and you like to assume then that the, the, the district attorney have had these two conflicting things and you've got video footage, which I think trumps testimony from somebody who's involved in the incident. Why are we, why is it taking this long? And then the other part of that is, is that the two, that one of the men that was involved in the shooting used to work for the police department and used to work in the DA's office. So you look at that and it's just, mm. it, it makes your eyes go wide as to what in the world is going on down there and what are they doing. And it's very encouraging that the GBI is getting involved. And it'll be interesting once we start to see the timeline, because that's the other thing, the witness took this video footage, they turned it into the police and they haven't said anything since, since February the 23rd. There's just a lot that we don't know here, but what we do know, that should spur
1: action and should spur swift action, at least in my mind. Tia, Tia, one of the most heart-wrenching quotes that I've heard about this case comes from Darshan Kendrick, who's a leader of Democrats in the state legislature, Um, African-American, and she said, and this is her quote, just one day before I leave this earth, I want to go an entire day not worried about my brothers or dad or neighbors being hunted in the street like animals. Um, it, we don't know precisely what happened, but we do understand the emotion surrounding this, Tia.
0: Yes, you know I've had a lot of friends who are black men who run, you know, for exercise or for relaxation, and they're talking about how it impacts them to see video of a man who was running and was killed as a result. And let's be clear, one of the things that disturbs black people or, or well, that disturbs black people on a personal level, but that disturbs a lot of people is that it took graphic video of a man's death for people to believe that perhaps something was wrong. You know, it, the words in his family and of grieving mother and in weird circumstances, because the man was accused of a burglary, which is a nonviolent crime. He died as a result. Even if you believe the narrative, there was no movement until people had to, with their own eyes, watch him die. And what does that say about how America in law enforcement um, considers the lives of black people?
2: Tia makes a good, a good point. Um, and let's keep in mind a couple of crazy twists and turns in this thing and, and also what the future holds because I think the future is going to be just as difficult as the past has been. First of all, this went on for nearly 80 days before anybody got interested in it, um, and, and, as, as Tia points out uh, in the video prompted that. We've had two district attorneys recuse themselves from the case, so it, it's, ha- it's been caught up in a sort of a bureaucratic morass that has extended it. And now, don't forget, the Georgia legal system is more or less shut down. The grand jury that is supposed to look at this is not going to be looking at it for, I think it's over a month from now. So there is a lot of time, and I think that that time will, you know, again, invite all sorts of controversy and confusion and all this. And then, you know, as, as uh, this video, we have a story today that makes clear the person who whoever provided this video was a friend of the guys who
1: pursued the man who died
2: so this is this yeah he is was apparently really,
1: recording the chase
2: right i mean it's a very weird troubling thing and you know my, all my experiences taught me like boy you really have to hope that a law enforcement handles this well and that people are provided the information and details of what happened in a timely way before this just spins
1: completely, completely out of control. Kyle, again, we don't know the exact circumstances here. Um, we, we, there are, we, we do know the shooting took place, um, and it will be investigated finally, apparently. Um, but as an investigation takes place— this once again highlights the fact that Georgia is one of only five, I think now four states that do not have a hate crimes law. it, it the effort to prosecute if they will to go to that far uh, for um, uh, 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 added circumstances doesn't exist in the state of Georgia.
4: Yeah, and I've seen you know sort of arguments on both sides of the of the issue with the hate crime statute specifically. Um, You know, I I think there is evidence that suggests that a hate crime statute does send a message that a legal system and a society does not tolerate acts driven by racial hatred or animosity towards specific groups or people with specific characteristics. You know, on the other hand, a hate crime statute doesn't necessarily speak to the delays in getting uh, this case in front of a grand jury potentially having charges filed in this case and in other issues related to prosecutorial discretion. And it's also not shown that lengthening prison sentences necessarily has a deterrent on crimes being committed in the first place. So I think that there's a healthy debate there to be had around that issue specifically and how it relates to this case. But I think just on a personal level, you know, I a few years ago, I was training for long races. I was out for runs every day the same way. That Ahmad was, and it, that is something that never crossed my mind that this could happen to me, and it would never happen to me because I'm white. And so I hope that people who are not as directly impacted think about how differently the experience of African Americans is in in everyday activity, like going out and getting a run-in, and how that experience can be deadly.
1: Yeah, Kevin, uh, Elena Parent. Uh, Senator, State Senator Elena Parent is quoted as saying, If I was out for a jog, would I have any chance of being chased and gunned down? The answer is no. And of course, uh, Senator Parent is white.
2: Yeah, I think that um, another thing worth pointing out here, Bill, is that, again, this is down in Glenn County. And we, uh, you know, highlighted the case there a couple years ago. A Caroline Small, case, you know, was the name of a, a woman who was. Um, Officers pursued her in a really a low-speed chase. She apparently had mental problems and then uh, killed her, uh, you know, uh, in a way that was very disturbing. And so this jurisdiction of Georgia has some troubling history that, again, I think is all part of how people are feeling about this current case.
1: All right, we're going to keep track of this case. I I promise you that Political Rewind will do its best to stay on top of it. I do want to point out, before we take one last quick uh, subject here, that uh, the Attorney General, Chris Carr, has said that after seeing the video, he's deeply disturbed by what he's seen. Uh, That's a good sign. Governor Kemp has said he wants the investigation to proceed. So maybe uh, weeks and weeks and weeks after this shooting— uh, we're finally going to begin to see some action in determining exactly what led to this young man's uh, death. Very quickly, also, before we have to leave, Adam, you mentioned Buddy Carter. And I don't want to leave our uh, listeners without an understanding of what happened. Your, your paper reported this first. Buddy Carter, of course, is the has been the leading proponent of a spaceport down along the Georgia coast there. Uh, but very quickly, because we don't have a lot of time, tell us what the controversy has been around that.
3: I'll try to be as brief as possible, but baseport Camden is located in Camden County, which is the county just north of the Florida line, so between Brunswick and, and Florida, and they want to build a spaceport on a former industrial site, and it's been very controversial environmentally because of the path of the rockets and the, and the chance that it could fall on certain areas. It's been a very controversial initiative, and Carter has rallied behind it, and we came to find out that Carter had bought property nearby, uh, about seven miles away on another coastal island. Now, he bought the property two years after he initially voiced support for the spaceport. And so it's one of those things that his office is very adamant of. We bought this as a hunting and fishing property where there's, there's no impropriety here. But then when you look at the fact that he's carried the torch for the property. And, you know, he represents the district. If he, if he believes in the property and sees it as economic development driver, then he should be the one to carry it. But needless to say, all of that has kind of contributed to a need for public scrutiny. It doesn't help that he bought the property for half what the previous owner had paid for, and that the property, which is he bought for $2 million, he's paying a ridiculously low uh, property tax assessment on it. So.
1: That, that's it in a nutshell. Tia, Tia, let me, Tia okay. real quick, you got about 30 seconds because you've looked at this too.
0: Yeah, I looked at it, and, and I um, credit the morning news with moving forward with, you know, at least giving it some sunshine and some transparency. That always helps no matter what. Of course, Representative Carter says he's done nothing wrong, but the question I still have is how he, he lives in Pooler. Yes, that's his district, but it's not near where he lives. So
1: it's like, how did you find this property? <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm sorry to cut this short. I, it's, I said at the start of the show we have more than we could possibly cover and that we had a great panel to do it. I would love to keep talking with all of you for the next hour, but GPB Radio isn't going to let me do that. So let me just say thank you to Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Brimmer, Kyle Hayes, and Kevin Riley great conversation today. Thanks, all of you, for listening. We'll be back again with another Political Rewind tomorrow. By the way, Governor Kemp is scheduled later this afternoon to give an update on what's happening with coronavirus in Georgia, GPB Radio, and our platforms, uh, websites, and other platforms. will carry it live when it happens. Take care, everybody.